This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's economy is so hot, even economists are surprised. Almost every industry here is growing, and the news isn't just good for corporate bottom lines. With unemployment so low, workers have leverage, and their pay is rising. CPR's Ben Marcus covers business for us. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. Even economists are surprised? What do you mean by that? Well, economists have, you know, reams of data, goes back years. They have models that are tried and true. And before 2018 started, they pointed to slowing growth. So there would still be growth in the job market in Colorado, but it would be much slower than what we were used to. Um, Part of the reason for that was unemployment rate has been at or below 3% for 19 consecutive months. So Sort very unprecedented. low, right? Unprecedented. And so the thought was employers couldn't grow their businesses if there was nobody to hire. And so that's why economists are surprised. And the graphs are pretty compelling. You should see a clear decline going into the end of 17, and then a clear, what they say is a re-acceleration of the economy in 2018. If the fear was they weren't going to find workers, the businesses, where are they? finding them? How are these workers materializing? Well, that's really interesting. So it's partly that they're importing labor from other states, right? We know that we can see that all around us, new license plates from states all around California, New York, wherever. Um, But what's most interesting is that people are getting back into the labor force. The labor participation rate is rising significantly in Colorado after bottoming out in the recession. So 10 years later, uh, the workplace looks good enough that it's finally compelling people back off the sidelines and into the job force. To the more fundamental question of why businesses feel they can hire at this point, what are the larger economic factors feeding Colorado's healthy economy? Certainly tax cuts are helping to put the foot on the gas a little bit. And so businesses feel comfortable with adding positions if they suddenly have this windfall from tax cuts. And so it's actually thought that it will peter out a little bit by next year, this tax cut impact. But it's clearly having an impact. We have a lot of new businesses forming in Colorado. The rate of new businesses is very high. And the research shows that new businesses hire a lot more than older businesses. You mentioned that some workers who hadn't been in the labor market in the workforce are returning. Is that because the wages are rising? It's just attractive enough to do so? It must be. It must be partly that. The playing field seems to have tilted a bit towards workers, which is a change. Workers have really been kind of at a disadvantage, working longer hours, wages hadn't been moving. But for really the last year, we've seen solid wage growth in Colorado. Um, The labor market's tight, right? There's less than one unemployed person for every open job. So you have leverage. You have leverage. Uh, If you have a job already to ask for a raise, would you say? Absolutely. The quit rate in Colorado is quite high, and that indicates that people are shopping around for better jobs, whether that's better pay or better hours, closer to home, or just something that matches your skill set a little better. It could be a question of pay. It could be a question of benefits as well, I suppose. And that would be true if you are seeking a job and and, you you, you know you've got it and that they want you. It's a good feeling to be in, Uh right? Not having to worry, you know, having to take whatever's available. It is not all about the worker. Companies are doing well uh, as well in many different sectors, Ben. 
all the sectors are doing really well. Agriculture is maybe the weakest in Colorado. Um, it's weakest nationwide because crop prices are very low, but Colorado is really dependent on ranching and the land values are still high. So even in agriculture, Colorado is doing pretty darn well. Um, every sector is seeing job growth and Colorado is already a very diverse economy. So this is pretty good news across the board. And that really is what differentiates Colorado now from Colorado then. I'm thinking of the 80s in particular, but previous economic booms and busts have come as a result of a lack of diversity in the economy. Well, that's the interesting thing. So in the 80s, we were very energy dependent. And so if energy was down, we were down. We had a little energy recession from 2014, 15, 16, and we barely felt it. It's booming again, and we barely notice it. And that speaks to how diverse Colorado's economy has become. Okay, when does this economic gravy train end? And I, I know I'm asking you to you know, whip out the crystal ball here. That's really the billion-dollar question right now is when will this end? So the Wall Street Journal did a survey of economists and they predicted about 2020 is when this economic expansion would end. If that's true, if we start to see job growth fall and the economy shrink in 2020, that would make this the longest economic expansion in U.S. history. Maybe not the best coming out of the recession, but really the longest and steadiest growth that we've ever seen. All right. I want to point to something that we have online at CPR.org, Ben, which is a constant tracker of economic data in Colorado. It's a really good place to fact check what you're hearing from candidates this election. If they paint a particular picture of the economy, just tell us a bit what's there. Yes, we've got unemployment and wages, things that, you know, you care about oil production. And we've also split it out by administration, whether that's presidential administration or the governor's administration, to get a sense of how politics may be playing in some of these numbers. But it's there's no spin. They're just the numbers. You look at them yourself and decide um, where you think things are going. Head over to CPR.org for that. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. He is CPR's business reporter, Ben Marcus, with perspective on Colorado's economy and the power that it gives workers. Ski industry giant Vail Resorts is finalizing its purchase of Crested Butte Mountain Resort. It's a remarkable turn of events for a ski area that has prided itself on being anti-corporate. CPR's Nathaniel Miner reports. Crested Butte has always liked to talk about how it's different. In the 1980s, ads called it a cost-conscious alternative to bigger resorts. The same altitude as Vail, one said, but more down-to-earth. John Norton came up with that last one. He was an executive at Crested Butte in the 80s. And he says for a long time, this resort and town were different. You know, if we had been on Denver's doorstep, we wouldn't look anything like we are today. And I probably wouldn't want to live here. Uh, it's just our remote location has saved the place. Crested Butte is tucked into the end of a picturesque valley, at least four hours from Denver. The town's full of Victorian storefronts and refurbished miner shacks. In the 70s, self-described hippies bought these places for rock-bottom prices after the last coal mine shut down and before the ski area took off. 
And while those homes now routinely sell for more than a million dollars, the town's been able to hold on to its funky charm. They even gave themselves a catchy title. Who came up with the last great ski town in Colorado? That's brilliant marketing. Yeah, you know, I don't know if that was the community or the ski area, but when we first heard the expression, everybody seemed to agree with it. And that's why, when news came down earlier this summer, that Vail Resorts, the Vail Resorts, would buy Crested Butte, some locals around here screamed bloody murder. One critic is Matt Steinwand. He pays $300 a month in rent for a duplex downtown. It's really one of the last sort of affordable, admittedly run-down ski bum pads. The grass in the yard comes up nearly to my knees. There are bikes everywhere, including a massive tricycle powered by motorcycle engines. Steinwan worries that when Vale moves in, a real estate boom will follow, and the few affordable places left, like his, will disappear. I think we, we're going to lose some of our soul, for sure. We're not going to be as eccentric anymore. Real estate agents say asking prices have gone up about 20% since Vale announced the purchase. But those hikes haven't turned into sales. Yet. Regardless, affordable housing is a huge issue here, like it is in so many ski towns across Colorado. But here's the thing. A lot of people in town are excited, or at least cautiously hopeful, about Vale's arrival. And I talked with a lot of locals, extreme skiers, an executive at the arts nonprofit. Even John Norton has changed his mind. Well, I, th- I think we got lucky. Norton, who used to make fun of Vale, admits Crested Butte's glory days are behind it. Things have slipped since the 1990s, when the resort counted more than a half a million skier visits a year. Well, there was always a dream, and as yet unfulfilled, that the resort was going to take, you know, its place on the national stage. But it's never gotten its feet underneath it. Chairlifts need an upgrade. The base area needs a refresh. The outgoing owners didn't have the cash for that. But Norton and many other locals I talked to think that Vale does. Vale wouldn't talk about the deal, but the company said in a statement that it'll put $35 million into Crested Butte and two other resorts it's buying, and that, quote, honoring the history of Crested Butte and the surrounding community is crucial to us. Kathy Sporsich is a retired teacher and a rare Crested Butte native. She's hopeful that Vale will fix the place up. You might as well look for some of the positive because it's a fact. And I don't think Vale wants to or can change the funkiness of Crested Butte. The town is just a few weeks from its fall off season. Temperatures at night are dipping into the 40s. And that means snow could be just a month or two away. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. The monsters in movies and books can be a little less scary because we know they don't exist. But what happens when that monster somehow materializes in the real world? That was the case in 2014 when two girls in Wisconsin stabbed and nearly killed another girl, invoking the name of Slender Man, a character from a website. Yet the attackers were convinced he was real. Now there's a movie out about Slender Man. Slender Man. He preys on innocent youth. Those who hear the three bells toll accept his invitation. He gets in your head like a virus. This intersection between pop culture, obsession, and violence is explored further in a new novel from Colorado author Carter Wilson. It's called Mr. Tender's Girl. It is inspired by the 2014 stabbing, but asks what happens to the survivor when she grows up. 
And Carter, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I appreciate it. How did you first hear about the case in Wisconsin? And I wonder why it stuck with you. Yeah, I mean, just like I I get it from all my news just online. And I remember reading the article and I was completely chilled by the first two paragraphs. Just the idea of this, this horrific crime and the fact that there were two girls perpetrating against another one and their age and the fact that they used a knife. And then I got to about the third paragraph and I saw that this um, victim survived and I immediately stopped reading because I knew I wanted to explore mostly what this victim looked like as an adult. Where does she work? What does she think about? What does she do? Um, so I haven't actually read anything else about the Slenderman crime since those three paragraphs um, because I didn't want to be influenced by it, and I was, and I wanted to create my whole world around it. Oh, that's fascinating! As opposed to diving in and digesting every right. part of the story, uh, will you say just a bit more about what stood out in those initial paragraphs? I mean, was it the nature of the girls? imagination, real-world fears. Just say a little bit more about that. Yeah, a few things for sure. I mean, first and foremost, I think you're dealing with the age, which is just when you talk about girls at that age committing such a terrible crime, that sticks with you. The fact that there are two perpetrators and that they were both in belief of this tribute to this fictional character, that they both had to believe that, um, stood out. And then the fact that they used a knife, that's a very personal personal way to attack um, those three things together, I think, stuck with me. And as you say, in the real life story, the victim survived and you got to wondering what would the rest of her life be like? Exactly. So in your novel, Mr. Tender's Girl, the protagonist, Alice, was also brutally stabbed as a teenager by two other girls. In this case, because of a fictional character called Mr. Tender, who told them to do it. Even more tragic is that this character is actually from a graphic novel series that Alice's father created. So why create Mr. Tender instead of writing a story around Slender Man? Well, I think, you know, I I didn't want to be too influenced by real events. And I also didn't really want to take advantage of the story. Um, Did it seem distasteful? A little bit. um, But I I think even more than that, I wanted to explore my own imagination. And and the idea of Mr. Tinder came to me pretty quickly. And the idea that he was the creation of Alice's father was a very powerful uh, influence when I was writing this. Mr. Tender refers to a bartender, Tell us about him. So Mr. Tender is essentially a demonic bartender. So he works uh, from pub to pub in the south end of London. And, you know, like any bartender, you walk into the bar where he's working and you sidle up to the bar and you unload all of, all of your problems of the world to him. And he kind of leans in and he'll ask you very delicately, well, what would you be willing to do to get rid of those problems? So in essence, Mr. Tender in his graphic novel fame, he'd convince good people to do very bad things. So he was an influential character. And he uses elixirs. He uses drinks as one of his tools. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, he, he was just this pop culture fiction created by Alice's own father. And, and in my book, the series became very popular in the UK where Alice was, was raised. So Alice winds up being attacked because of the character that her father has created. That must be very hard for him. That's right. So it completely shattered their family. Alice moved to the States with her mother and her brother, and the father vowed never to to draw Mr. Tender again, and he died a number of years later. 
How did the character of Mr. Tender occur to you, the bartender figure? So it was actually kind of interesting. I, th- I thought up the name Mr. Tender before I even knew what Mr. Tender was. I just liked the name. It's also evocative of it's, slender. Yeah, maybe there's something there as well. And then about halfway through the book, I realized, like, oh, he's a bartender. That's what he is. Um, you and, came up with the word before yeah, the Yeah, the name concept. before the concept. Huh. And then it kind of took off from there. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Colorado author Carter Wilson. His new book is called Mr. Tender's Girl. Alice, the protagonist, again, who is attacked as a kid by these two young girls, is a complex character. You have some vivid descriptions of her recurring panic attacks. How much research did you do into anxiety, PTSD, perhaps? Because the sections of the book... They really capture something about the experience of someone who has been traumatized early on. Yeah, there I, I did uh, actually a fairly light amount of research on panic attacks, and, and fortunately I haven't suffered from them, but it was important that I did capture that feeling. So I went to a website, and I'm, of course I'm going to forget the name of it now. That's okay. But there's a website that simply asks people to write one sentence that describes what it feels like to be there, be, have a panic attack or an anxiety attack. Hmm. And you read hundreds of these sentences and you get the feeling of exactly what it feels like. There's a lot of the word suffocation, death, hopelessness, crushing. And once you read those sentences from individual users, it's very easy to imagine what it actually feels like. There are many steps that Alice has taken to make herself feel safe. She has removed any knives from her home. And so when she prepares food, it's always with forks and spoons, impractical as that may be. Right, right. Yeah, she has definitely a phobia of knives, and and she runs her own coffee shop, and she allows one knife to be used there, and she doesn't ever see it. Um, But And that's not even so much out of fear um, of of being hurt, but just she just is, is phobic around knives. Of course, she has these panic attacks because... She had been stabbed and left for dead at a park in London where her family had moved for a time. Can you read the passage when she returns to the scene of a, the crime as an adult? Sure, I'd be happy to. Yeah, she's 28 years old now, and she's, she's visiting her crime scene at night for the first time. There is a haunting nostalgia here, a childhood familiarity layered with seconds of sheer terror. I used to play in this park. I nearly died in this park. I chased young boys in this park. Over three pints of my blood spilled in this park. Ahead are the trees I remember well. They'd been planted in such a way that the park seems to turn into a dense forest without warning. Thomas and I used to call this section Hundred Acre Wood, and I would always play Christopher Robin. Thomas would always be Tigger, bounding and bounding about, both reckless and delighted with himself. Sometimes a whole day would pass here, though he'd hardly be aware of more than a few minutes going by. I suppose that's actually the definition of childhood. As you age, the day eventually seems as long as it actually is, and toward, towards the end of one's life, I imagine a single day can feel like a lifetime. I enter Hundred Acre Wood and am immediately swallowed inside. The trees loom over me like a million predators frozen in mid-pounce. Streetlights shine small pools of light on the ground, and it's all I can do to convince myself to make it to the next one. There, up ahead, the little footbridge spanning a trickle of a creek. That's where it happened. And so this place was of such innocence for her and becomes so traumatic. 
uh, I want to g- get further into your mind, Carter Wilson, <laughs> and, and and figure out like where the the darkness dwells or where it comes from. I mean, the, the book certainly has violence in it, but it also deals with with demons, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm very much fixated with um, paranoia and tension and the idea of a relatively uh, everyday person being faced with extraordinary struggle um and that you know necessitates darkness and tension and usually bad things happening so i like to throw things out of character and see exactly how they're going to deal with it so i think from that comes um kind of these dark dark subjects how much did you imagine mr tender and 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 in terms of developing a character i wonder how literal you get with how they look, drawing the character, something like that. Well, that's actually an interesting question because I decided, because Mr. Tinder is a graphic novel character, I decided I wanted to see what he really looked like. So I actually commissioned an artist who used to work um, for DC Comics to draw a cover of a Mr. Tinder graphic novel for me, as I describe it in the book. Oh. Um, so I know exactly how he looks, um, and, and that was important to me to, to get to that step. Creepy? Handsome? Maybe he's handsome. Yeah, it was important that he was handsome. And that people feel comfortable just... Right. Letting it all out. Right. Them. He's a very, he's a persuasionist, I like to say. So it's important that, that you kind of uh, fall into his, his trap. Thanks for this trip inside your mind. Thank you. Carter Wilson is the author of Mr. Tender's Girl, which is inspired by the real life Slender Man stabbing in Wisconsin in 2014. The movie Slender Man is now in theaters. <laughs> Cooler temperatures moved in in the past few days, but hot, dry conditions have already closed some rivers to anglers. Record warmth in the Yampa and White River basins in northwest Colorado stress fish, creating concern for the anglers, rafting outfitters, and environmentalists. CPR's Grace Hood explains. For more than 40 years, Kirk Clanky has fished for trout along Ranch Creek in Grand County. This time of the year, each expedition begins with a water thermometer. I'm come back here and get a, get a water temperature. Today's water temperature, 55 degrees at 11 a.m. It's well below 65 when trout can get stressed, but it's early in the day. Hot air temperatures and a shallow stream bed heat up the water quickly. This just... I think about the hottest year we've seen. Worst stream temperatures and the most amount of fishermen. As Colorado grows, this sport becomes really popular. Anglers come from across the state and the world to fish trout in Colorado's premier streams. But severe drought and prolonged heat are a bad combination for fish. That's why Colorado parks and wildlife officials have fishing restrictions in a half dozen rivers across the state. Senior aquatic biologist Lori Martin works with parks and wildlife. She says the scope of the restrictions is unprecedented. We have implemented voluntary fishing closures for various waters at a smaller scale recently, but not to the geographic extent that we have in 2018. Here's why. Low water levels mean the water gets hotter faster and trout can't get enough oxygen. Disease can spread. Along the Yampa River and downtown Steamboat Springs, the fishing restriction from 2 p.m. to midnight is voluntary, like all others in Colorado. 
and everyone here seems to follow it. There's still tons of fishing to do up here. It's just not right downtown Steamboat. Johnny Spillane owns Steamboat Fly Fisher. He guides clients to other stretches over the river without restrictions. Like We're lucky here because we have a ton of other options. But if you're in a place where you're reliant on one section of river for your whole business, then yeah, that's a problem. Spillane says the hit to his business so far this season is small. But for backdoor sports, the impact has been more significant. Owner Pete Vandekar says business is down 50 percent because city restrictions prevented him from selling tubes to visitors. Uh, it drove me a little stir crazy to sit around and explain to people all day why they couldn't go on the river. Now he has a new challenge. He can't find workers to help manage the new influx of business. Vandekar's summer workers have either found other jobs or heading back to school. He says this summer's drought and river conditions made him an outfitter without a river. I, I tell this to people all the time. If we have one 90-degree day throughout the course of a, a summer, it's a hot summer in Steamboat Springs. And this year, I mean, I, I, I bet we've had 30, at least 90-degree days. So uh, that's that's a pretty darn warm summer. In fact, data show record heat for this part of the state. Steamboat Springs is guided by a Yampa River management plan. As water and air temperatures rise, there are local strategies to protect fish habitat. But few other cities in Colorado's high country have such plans. Along the Colorado River in Kremlin, tourists mill around the Adventures in Whitewater shop. Owner Justin Scheibel says traffic this year isn't the issue. You know, the impact on business up here has been more uh, quality. Scheibel says he can get rafters on the river, but the wild bucking bronco ride that adventure seekers crave just isn't there this year. The water's too low. And then watching the algae bloom and watching the fish die and watching, you know, uh, shoving people over rock bars on your rafts, you know, is not what I consider quality. Scheibel says water diversions to front range cities contribute to this problem, lessening already depleted stream flows. He worries the Colorado River will continue to wither away as temperatures reach new highs and Colorado's front range population grows. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. It is one of the most stunning stretches of highway in the country, I-70 through Glenwood Canyon. The last time I drove through it earlier this summer, I noticed cell service still cuts off entirely, a reminder that nature is in charge. Well, Colorado poet Jovan Mays wrote a poem about the canyon. It's called Something New Glenwood Canyon, and his intensity gave me goosebumps. Hey there. Did you feel that? Probably pretty hard to know. But just a minute ago, you just drove through Colorado's youngest volcano. The Utes called this dot Sarah. Quite appropriate for the translation meaning something new, something foreign, a chasm, a rupture of the orthodox. Feel the sky's manipulation. Feel the sidewalls rising like you're entering a half pipe, but more of a pipe organ, because the only borders in here are in the sky. An orchestra of kestrels. Golden, red-tailed, and ospreying. Neil Sign Newman. Neil Sign Newman. Nothing without providence. Nothing without deity. Sanctified sandstone scripture. White water sacrament. A conifer congregation. 
a forest of formations, ridge, line, gospel. Welcome to Glenwood Canyon, the Cathedral of the Rockies. Observe its spires and steeples, this hollowed homage, excavated eminence, striated tenement, the genetics of geology, bouldered brilliance, scintillated supremacy of folklore, legendary legions of the lifted, pious peaks of protrusion, you right now are an echo of the unthinkable. Right now you are riding on the axis of hymnals, the spine of the sacred, the heresy of the holiness, where exits don't need a name. This land where lakes tell suspense stories. These tunnels are not just tunnels. They're a chance to catch your breath. Way before silver booms, before California zephyrs, way before statehood was just a state of mind. Because right now, you are dancing with 500 million years of river. Way before the Spanish came up with the word Colorado was just the color red that she painted this body. The way she severed through this crevice. Is she a composer, a mason, a carpenter, a barnstorm of rapids ripping from the mouth in which a roaring fork fed this family? The Old West outlaws wanted to call this town defiance, but the Colorado doesn't celebrate Doc's holidays. Such mud in her melanin, such torrent in her tails. This is the water that fords the Grand Canyon, the source that supplies the Southwest, the lifeblood of the desert. Roll down your windows. Hear her sing you through. Wade in her warmth. Wallow in her wilderness. Marinate in her medicine. In this land, admiration is the only accepted currency. So leave everything intact and leave nothing behind. Poet Javon Mays with Something New Glenwood Canyon. Maybe you're wondering where'd that poem come from? Well, it's part of the new Wild I-70 audio tour, which you can download to your smartphone. To quote its creators, most of us rarely think about how this road impacts wildlife and wildlands. The tour introduces listeners to what's beyond their windshields. We'll post more information to CPR.org. Now the story of a wolf that became a legend and the symbol of a great debate. Journalist Nate Blakesley chronicles the life of a wolf in the Rockies and the forces that shape her destiny. Blakesley's book is American Wolf, a true story of survival and obsession in the West. It is set in Yellowstone National Park and raises questions about what might happen in Colorado. Nate, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. The book is very much a biography of 06, a wolf living in Yellowstone. She's named for the year she was born. Describe her for us. Well, she was uh, an unusually attractive wolf. She had the uh, gray coloration, which is pretty common in Yellowstone, attractive facial markings. She was larger than usual for a female. She was about 105 pounds, uh, a very powerful hunter, unusually adept at taking down elk, which is their main prey in Yellowstone, uh, by herself. And that's sort of how she first got came to the attention of this small subculture of of wolf-watching aficionados in the park. But really the reason she became famous is that she was the easiest wolf to spot in the park at a time when social media was just exploding. And so 
more casual visitors to the park, just tourists would happen to be in the right place, right time. They would see her. They would take some pictures of video posted online and her legend just sort of grew. Mm. And she was an alpha, right? Right. That means that she was the breeding female in the pack. Every pack is basically a family. You have the breeding male and female known as the alpha male and female. Um, and so she, the visitors were there and sort of saw this amazing adventure story that was her life, uh, sort of from the very beginning. And it was a great story. She, she left her natal pack as all wolves have to do in order to, to form a, a pack of their own and find a territory of their own. Um, and she embarked on this extended territorial battle with this other alpha female who controlled this sort of the most desirable land in the park known as the Lamar Valley. And, and watchers were there observing as she sort of outwitted, outwitted and then later outfought this alpha female of this other pack. And all of this sort of took place um, in this wide open, relatively treeless valley where wolf watching has become this really popular pastime. And her story really was not that unusual. What was unusual about it was how thoroughly documented it was. Um, this, this small group of watchers that would come to the park every day, follow the wolves using their radio tracking collars, and then watch them, and in some cases take notes all day. And that's what allowed me to, to write the book as I did, a sort of nonfiction book that reads like a novel in which many of the main characters are wolves. Indeed, it's not that the wolves keep the diary, it's that so many diaries are kept about them, and that gives you real insight into their days. You can see photos of 06 posted at CPR.org, and... Uh, why don't we have you read a passage from the book that gives us a glimpse into O6 pack, uh, including two male wolves known by their ID numbers as well? Okay, yeah, th- this is a, a scene in which she has established her first litter, and the den happened to be perfectly visible from the campground road. And as you mentioned, the other two wolves you'll hear mentioned are her mate, 755, and his brother, 754. Situated high on the mountainside, The den had a clear view of the flats of Slough Creek far below, as well as the Lamar River where it exited Lamar Canyon, and, beyond, a long arm of Specimen Ridge. One morning, as the pups were playing on a fallen log, and 754 and 755 were bedded nearby, 06 walked to the center of the bowl and sat in a field of luxurious grass, surveying the mountainside that dropped away below her. Suddenly she threw her muzzle into the air and howled, the two males roused themselves and trotted to, trotted to her side to join in. The pups scampered over, confused and startled, looking everywhere for the danger that had prompted their mother to sound this alarm. But there was no danger. There was just warm sunshine and soft grass and the bounty of an enormous territory that belonged only to them. They tilted their tiny heads back and added their voices to the chorus. Hmm. Um... It's so interesting to have a main character who's not human that you can't actually communicate with. Um, does that does that make her to some extent unattainable? Uh, maybe easier to to side with or fall in love with? <laughs> well, it was certainly challenging as a journalist to to try to make her a character in a story, and that's partly what was so exciting to me about this story. Um, the reason it was possible was very early on in the reporting. Um, a woman, a retired school teacher named Lori Lyman, who lives near the park and comes almost every day and takes notes every day, gave me this treasure trove of material 
2,400 pages, three years worth of daily observations of 06 and her pack. And I, and I read through it and I saw the outlines of this amazing adventure story. Um, and it was possible. I hadn't realized this uh, at the time, but it was possible to get to know individual wolves, to get to know their personalities, their habits, you know, the, their, their strengths and weaknesses, uh, and to have them actually be characters with whom you can identify and, and sympathize uh, in the story. And by the way, not every wolf in the story is sympathetic. You know, some of them have personalities that you don't sympathize with. Mm. Well, some background here. Wild wolves were systematically exterminated and pretty much gone from the lower 48 by the 1920s. And in the mid-1990s, wildlife managers brought wild wolves from Canada and then reintroduced them into Yellowstone. 06 was a descendant of those wolves. Uh, And indeed, you write that this was an amazing opportunity for wildlife researchers to observe wolf behavior. Among them is Rick McIntyre, who also keeps very fastidious field notes. Um, And what did you learn about the day in the life of a wolf? Because these notes give you a sense of of her kills, her fights for territory. Is Is it an interesting day? Is it a busy day? <laughs> well, if you're lucky, it is. You know, wolves, like your dogs, will tend to spend most of the day sleeping. And so the watcher's strategy is to get out there right before dawn when the wolves are still active um, and then watch them as much as they can until the wolves sort of bed down and then watch them again in the evening when they become more active. But when they are awake, wolves spend most of their time running. That is sort of the defining characteristic of wolves. It's what makes them such stunning animals, such amazing predators, is their stamina. They will routinely run 20 miles in a day. You, you watch them through these spotting scopes, these powerful telescopes. You never actually get that close to the wolves, but you can see them really well through these scopes. And it looks like they're just trotting. And then you look up and you see the size of the landscape that they're moving across. Routinely move 20 miles in a day. They can run 40 miles in a day if they need to. They spend most of that time either checking the boundaries of their territory. Every part of Yellowstone is held by one pack or another and they're fiercely territorial. Or sort of taking inventory of the various herds of elk, which is their main prey in the park. And they will kill usually an elk every three or four days. Um, And that was something that had rarely been witnessed before reintroduction into Yellowstone. I want to be very clear that you do not write this book purely from the perspective of those who love and adore the wolves. Um, And and we'll get to the debate over wolves and their reintroduction in just a bit. Uh, But I I have the sense that wolf advocates are really trying to paint the animal as not the big big bag wolf, even though they engage in some pretty bad behavior, as you document in the book. Right. Well, I think that you mentioned Rick McIntyre. He's sort of he works for the Park Service. He's sort of the wolf guru there. He's the one that helps visitors find wolves and tells them what they're seeing. He's this amazing font of wolf folklore in the park. And I think what he feels like he's working against is hundreds or actually thousands of years of sort of misinformation about wolves. Wolves have been so thoroughly demonized for so long, um, essentially as long as people have tried to raise livestock because wolves were the main obstacle to all these early sort of pastoral civilizations that began to raise sheep, goat, uh, and cattle. 
Wolves were once the most widely distributed land mammal on the planet, found almost everywhere in the Northern Hemisphere. Oh, wow. And today, Homo sapiens is that most widely distributed animal, and it's no coincidence. Everywhere that human civilization has flourished, wolves have sort of been pushed to the margins. And as you mentioned earlier, in North America, almost entirely eliminated. They were once found all the way from the Arctic Circle down to Mexico City. Uh, by the late 19th century, you could find them pretty much only up in uh, the northern part of Michigan, upper Wisconsin, upper Minnesota. Everywhere else, they had been wiped out by fur trappers or by uh, cattle ranchers protecting livestock. I want to say that um, my words, bad behavior there, uh, <laughs> are probably out of line. A wolf behaves as a wolf behaves. It's it's up to the outside folks to, to judge whether it's bad or good behavior. Not, not up to me by any means. What effect, Nate... Uh, did the reintroduction of wolves have on Yellowstone's ecosystem? This is an important question for Coloradans uh, because it's possible that there might be a, a reintroduction program here. Yeah, well, the 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 reason wolves had to be brought back to Yellowstone is that the ecosystem was essentially broken. Even though Yellowstone is the crown jewel of, of the national park system in the United States, uh, it was not a healthy ecosystem. Wolves had been gone. By the time they were brought back in the mid-90s, they had been gone for about 70 years. And the result was just this explosion in the elk population um, because there was no longer any predator around to keep them in check. Um, and the habitat began to degrade. And park rangers saw this as early as the 1940s. And what they were forced to do uh, was to cull the elk population. They would round up thousands of them, usually in the winter when there were a few visitors around, and, and shoot them, basically replacing wolves with rifles. And the idea that bringing wolves back would be sort of a more holistic solution to that problem had been around for decades. But it was controversial, and they didn't get it done until the mid-90s. Now, when they did finally get it done, it was an enormous success. Wolves spread throughout the park and then beyond the park's borders throughout much of their former range in the northern Rockies. And the effect you saw on the park was exactly as predicted. The elk population came down. And more importantly, elk started behaving more like wild animals. They stopped congregating in these river valleys where they were overbrowsing on willow and aspen and damaging the trout streams. And when the willow came back, you had food for the beavers who came back, which, of course, improves the riparian ecology. And then some more unexpected changes happened, too. There were far too many coyotes in the park because they had no canine competition. And when the wolves came back, the coyote population plummeted. And one of the things they saw as a result was a rebound in the pronghorn population because coyotes were eating a lot of baby pronghorns. Likewise, the rodent population bounced back without the coyotes. And so you saw all these more food for raptors like hawks and eagles. And there was this avian renaissance in the park that no one had anticipated or even knew they were missing. And so this cascade, biologists call it a, a trophic cascade of events uh, has been uh, of positive effects from wolf reintroduction uh, has been so thoroughly well documented now 20 years on that it's considered one of the great wildlife success stories of the 20th century. Trophic, re related to food and the food chain. Um, right. Talk about the position, though, of the hunting community and ranchers. Because as you say, this had effects beyond the park. Right. Well, I mentioned it was controversial. The reason it was, as you, you put your finger on it there, the ranchers, the descendants of those same ranchers who had hunted wolves out of the northern Rockies, they're all still there, all still running cattle and sheep, in some cases on public land. They knew they stood to lose stock to wolves if wolves were brought back, and so they were very much opposed and then secondly, the elk hunting uh, industry, it's big business in the Northern Rockies, um, not just for guides and, and outfitters, but also for hotels and restaurants that cater to out-of-town hunters. People will come from 
all around the country to hunt those elk. And they hunt that, that Yellowstone elk herd, not while it's in the park, of course, but elk are migratory. And in the winter, they'll come down out of those high mountain ranges in the park into the valleys around and provide outstanding hunting. And those that community knew that they would suffer if wolves came back because there would be fewer elk. Did they suffer? Well, in some places, yes. Um, the elk population came down as predicted. Of course, that was one of the goals of reintroduction. But if you didn't share that policy goal, you weren't likely to celebrate its success. And in, in some of those valleys immediately adjacent to the park, there are fewer elk and as a result, fewer outfitters. Now, on a statewide basis, the elk harvest, as they call it, the number that are shot by hunters every year in, in for example, Wyoming has been very robust. It has been near record levels in recent years. So the elk are still there. They're just not necessarily found in some of the same places they traditionally were. Have people lost money? Have they lost businesses? Some outfitters have and some ranchers have, but you have to keep the impact on ranching in perspective. For Wyoming, for example, uh, last year they lost 230 elk and sheep to wolves. Now there's over a million elk and sheep, uh, I'm sorry, um, cattle and sheep in, in the state of Wyoming. And just to put that number 230 in perspective, tens of thousands are lost every year to bad weather, to diseases. Um, now, if all of those calves had been lost on one ranch, obviously that would be a significant impact. But the state of Wyoming has a compensation program. Ranchers are compensated seven times the value of any lost uh, calf or sheep if they can document that it came from wolves. So I think as uh, now 20 years on, I think ranchers are starting to learn to, to coexist with wolves, although in the hunting community, there's still a good deal of resentment. Well, speaking of the hunting community, we have to talk about Stephen Turnbull, who is another captivating character in your book. Uh, not all the characters have, have four legs. Um, tell us about Stephen Turnbull and how he fits into the picture. Well, the other story that the book tells, this sort of parallel narrative to O6's sort of life story and struggle, is this fight over how wolves ought to be managed in the West. And it went on uh, for 20 years, and it did culminate finally in wolves being taken off the endangered species list and their management being returned to the various states around Yellowstone all of which eventually instituted hunting seasons for wolves. And during that very first hunting season in Wyoming, in generations, one of the very first wolves killed, sadly, was 06. She, like all the packs in the park, she briefly led her pack out of the park just for a short time. It's a common thing, although they, they spend most of their time in the park. And on one of those excursions, happened to be during hunting season, and she was shot east of the park in this area known as Crandall. Now, he shot her in one of the most remote places in the lower 48. And by the next day, 24 hours later, it was in the New York Times. And then it was around the world. You know, world's most famous wolf shot near Yellowstone. Um, and for him, it was this unbelievably surreal experience to read about what he had done. Um, but by the time I caught up with him, which was about a year after this incident, he had changed his mind and he was ready to talk. Um, all he asked from me is that I protect his privacy by, by agreeing on a, a pseudonym, which we did, Stephen Turnbull, and that his story be, be treated with respect and that he come across as sort of a, a three-dimensional character who had a perspective of his own. And that was important to me. I wouldn't want to tell the story, you know, without having the perspective of someone who thought reintroduction was a bad idea. How did Stephen Turnbull, again, this is uh, a changed name, how did he feel about having killed such a famous animal? Well, when I f first found him, and we talked in his cabin for about an hour, he was extremely defensive. He kept saying over and over again, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. And, and from a legal perspective, he was right. Now, whether he had done something morally questionable, I think even he was a little bit on the fence about. Um, and that's what made it 
such an interesting interview, and that's what made him such an interesting character. He's not an anti-wolf ideologue. He doesn't believe that all wolves should be removed from the landscape. But he does very much resent the fact that there are far fewer elk in Crandall where he lives than there used to be. Um, and so for him, you know, this was – it was almost sacred to him. And in his own way, he is as obsessed with wildlife as someone like Rick McIntyre is in the park. And that's what made him such an interesting character. And I, I was so grateful that he agreed to participate in the book. What do Colorado and other western states – do they have a dog in this fight, so to speak? Well, Colorado is is the next sort of likely place uh, to attempt a similar reintroduction effort. Wolves, of course, were once found all throughout Colorado as they were all throughout North America. They were all extirpated by the end of the 19th century, just the same as they were up further north. Um, you have this huge expanse of, of public land in the western part of the state, which, of course, you would need if you were going to try this sort of landscape-scale reintroduction. And you have an overabundance of elk and deer. So you have this sort of motive, the rationale for reintroducing. Now, whether or not you're going to have that same sort of political fight that we saw in the northern Rockies – I guess, remains to be seen. Having reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone, I wonder if the animals have become too accustomed to people or cars and if that affects them when they leave the park or, I suppose, when they're in the park. Yeah, well, I think that's a fair question. I, they, there, it's certainly the case that wolves that live in the Lamar Valley, which is that most popular area for wolf watching, have become tolerant of people. Now, that doesn't mean they, they approach people. They don't. But they view people, say, a, a quarter, half mile away as a, not a threat. And so when they leave the park, and this is the behavior that Turnbull described to me the day that he shot 06, they are very naive about people and about hunting. Um, and so the question arises, is it fair chase, which is to say, is it ethical to hunt a wolf that's tolerant of people? Um, I think a lot of people would say no. Now the question becomes, what is the policy solution to that? Do you do you create a buffer around the park during which no hunting in, is allowed? And that would be a very controversial uh uh, measure for congressmen, Western congressmen. Um, and that's something I don't think we've quite come to terms with uh, from a policy perspective. I spoke with journalist Nate Blakesley about his book, American Wolf in January. The debate is far from over. This past spring, Mesa County commissioners voted to oppose wolf reintroduction. And at a forum in Grand Junction the other day, there was speculation of a ballot measure in 2020 to let voters decide. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us at CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Mm-hmm.